Evening, we return to our series on the law of God. And just as a reminder, we've been seeing how the moral law of God instructs us in the way we live. The moral law of God is summarized for us in the 10 words that God speaks at Sinai. And God's mercy and grace are actually revealed to us through his law. Uh, This may seem counterintuitive, but God graciously speaks to us. He is not a silent God. He speaks to us in the 10 words so that we not only know how to live in a way that pleases him, but also so that we might experience the goodness of living according to his will. You see, there's an inherent blessing in living according to God's design. Think about this analogy, and this will be important for us this evening as we particularly think about God's design for human sexuality. Most things designed and manufactured today come with an owner's manual, a fridge, a watch, any appliance, a TV, you name it, right? And an an owner's manual simply tells you what the maker says is important to know about how the thing functions. And the Bible for us, including God's law, tells us what our maker says about how we were created to function. And so as Christian disciples, God's moral law is foundational for our discipleship. It orients us in the midst of a dizzying world to live according to how God intends and to live out our faith with clarity. And when we do so, we experience the inherent blessing of living according to God's design. And from the outset, I want us to think about how we approach God's word, especially now as we wrestle with an issue that is very pressing in our culture today. Biblical sexual ethics have long been discarded by our society as a thing of the past. What the Bible teaches about sex today is considered oppressive, outdated, and unloving, and even a a hindrance to your own personal happiness. And we see that the world claims that the church is judgmental for holding to biblical truth. So I want to remind you of two things from the outset here. Number one, God's word stands above our human reasoning. And so the question is, will you trust the sufficiency and the authority of God's word? This is really what our discussion of human sexuality boils down to. Do we trust that our divine creator and Lord knows what's best for us? Do we trust that his word is a lamp to our feet? Do we trust that the very one who knit us together in our mother's womb, knows what's actually best for our lives. The confusion that we see today in our world about human sexuality, it hinges on the sin of autonomy. Our world believes that we exist independently of God, that we exist as autonomous creatures with absolute sovereignty over our own bodies, and that we forge our identities on the basis of what we feel 
because we arbitrate our truth. But the scriptures teach us that our bodies do not belong to us, uh, that they instead belong to God, and that truth is not something that is determined from within, but set forth objectively in God's word. And so this leads to the second thing we need to remember from the outset. Yes, God's word speaks plainly and objectively and authoritatively. And yes, we must never compromise on the truth of God's word, especially concerning human sexuality. But we must also remember God's grace displayed in the gospel displayed in the gospel for needy sinners and boldly proclaim repentance unto life. We must remember the marriage of grace and truth. We must affirm biblical truth and simultaneously declare the mercy of Christ for penitent sinners. Our denomination recently approved a report on human sexuality in 2021 and our session at 10th just adopted This report is a faithful summary of what we believe the Bible teaches concerning human sexuality. And I would would encourage all of you to to take the time to read the report, at at least the, the first 10 pages, because what you will find in this report is both fidelity to God's word and a heart of compassion for those who are struggling with sin. And this approach is not some kind of gimmick. It's not some kind of trick. It's it's instead a, a picture of the heart of Christ. Christ welcomes sinners to himself in mercy, but at the same time, he unwaveringly declares the truth and the power and the hope that is in the gospel. So this evening we'll consider two things. Firstly, the goodness of God's design for human sexuality. And secondly, our sinful deviation from God's design. Well, in order to understand God's design, we need to start at the beginning of the story. In the creation account, we not only find out about our origins, but we also find out about God's intentions for humanity. Before sin enters the world, before Adam and Eve become subject to the curse, God creates mankind in his image to dwell in perfect harmony. In Genesis 2, we read that God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. And in Genesis 2, verse 18, God says that it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God forms the woman from Adam's side and and he institutes marriage as a creation ordinance, as something that is very good. And the scriptures teach us that Marriage is instituted by God for several reasons, and I'm drawing largely from John Calvin here. God institutes marriage uh, for the mutual benefit of man and wife, both in terms of companionship, uh, but also in terms of enjoyment, the, the enjoyment that comes from intimacy. Marriage was designed by God for our well-being 
and our growth in grace, our, our mutual edification. God also institutes marriage for the purpose of raising children. And that's not to say that uh, if God doesn't grant you children that your marriage is unfruitful. Certainly not. Uh, many within the church struggle with infertility and God certainly hears your sorrows and acknowledges uh, your grief. But ordinarily, God provides mothers and fathers with children whom they are called to raise in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Marriage is also instituted to keep husbands and wives sexually pure. The Apostle Paul makes this case in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, where we read this. But because of the temptation to, sexually, to, to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Uh, now, now, this is certainly not a license to think of marriage as a quick fix for unbridled lust or sexual desire, right? Marriage is not simply to fix uh, your problem if you have an out-of-control uh, lust problem. And yet the gift of marriage is one that does lead to sanctification as the marriage bed is held in honor, as the marriage bed is undefiled. Marriage is also a picture of Christ and the church. The Apostle Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so we see that the covenantal love of God is actually an, uh, it's an analog for the human bond of love. God's love is, of course, of a different class. We as frail creatures can never love with the perfect, unconditional love the way God does. But the grace of marriage is that it points us towards heavenly realities. Human marriage will pass away in the new heavens and the new earth, but the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church, will be consummated when Christ returns triumphant on the last day. And this is how human history ends for the believer. It's what we see in Revelation 19. Our history ends with a marriage feast where we celebrate the eternal marriage of Christ and his church. So in summary, what we find is this, that God's design for human sexuality is created as a gift to be enjoyed between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. Any sexual act outside the context of marriage between one man and one woman is a violation of God's holy law. So as we think through the seventh word and the goodness of God's design for human sexuality, here is what the seventh word requires of you. It requires that you faithfully obey God's command to remain sexually pure, both in your actions and in your thought life. You'll remember when Jesus teaches on the importance of sexual purity, he says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. As we've seen time and time again, as we've studied God's law, we see that it's all about the heart. We not only transgress God's law when we sin in our outward actions, but in our inward thoughts, in our minds, and in our hearts. And this exposes our need for Christ. We are serial law breakers. We violate God's law every day. It's not only a sin to commit adultery, it's not only a sin to cheat on your spouse, but it is a sin to fantasize about that reality. And any fantasy of deviating from God's design for human sexuality is a sin that must be repented of. God created sex to be exclusively uh, enjoyed within the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. And when we think about what God requires of us, in the seventh word, we in our sinful nature, we, we, we often want to know where are the boundary lines. We're obsessed with the line. We ask, how, how far can we go? How close can I get to the line without crossing over? And we must stop looking for the line. The scriptures, the scriptures don't give us the line. They don't delve into every situation, into every circumstance. God gives us principles and then expects us to apply them in wisdom. God says that sex outside of marriage is sin. Full stop. No exceptions. So if you're dating someone, your impulse shouldn't be, how how close can I get to the line without crossing into sin? And instead, the impulse of your heart needs to be Lord, how can I most glorify you in this relationship? How can, I my, how can I most glorify you by placing boundaries and, and ensure that we honor you instead of always seeking how, how far is too far? How close can I, can I get to the line without sinning? You see, sex is to marriage what nuclear energy is to a reactor. Nuclear energy inside a reactor can do a world of good. It can power an entire city. But outside the reactor, it can do a world of harm, right? It, could, it can destroy an entire nation. And so it is with sex and marriage. Inside the confines of marriage between one man and one woman, sex leads to physical and spiritual flourishing. But outside the confines of marriage, it leads to physical and spiritual devastation. And in a world that rejects God's standard at every turn, sexual fidelity and covenant faithfulness actually proclaim the gospel. As weak human vessels, as as those who hold the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay... When we walk by the Spirit, we actually testify to the transforming grace of God. Whether God calls you 
to walk in step with the Spirit in marriage or in singleness, when you work out your salvation by following God's design for human sexuality, you are a beacon of light. You are a beacon of light in a dying world. You are an instrument of grace that God uses to show forth his power. And yes, we will all wrestle against sexual temptation until the day we die. Our struggles will be different and to varying degrees. But by obeying the seventh word, we display to the world the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ offered in the gospel. Well, secondly, what is our sinful deviation from God's good design? What is it that is forbidden in the seventh word? Well, ever since our first parents fell in the garden, we wage war against our sinful nature. Right? This is the reality of indwelling sin. Our human condition after the fall is tainted by sin in every facet of our humanity. And when it comes to God's design for human sexuality, uh, we, we sinfully deviate when we listen to the deceiver rather than the creator. And I could simply summarize by saying this, that any sexual deviation from one man and one woman within the context of marriage is sin. Right? And this includes both our thoughts and our actions. We read in Exodus chapter 20, God prohibits adultery. You shall not commit adultery. And as I mentioned earlier, Jesus reveals in the Sermon on the Mount that adultery isn't just engaging with sexual relations that someone is not, with someone who is not your spouse, but any thought or deed that deviates from God's design for human sexuality. And sexual sin in the Bible is categorized in serious terms. For example, the prophets often speak in the Old Testament of Israel's unfaithfulness to Yahweh in terms of spiritual adultery. When Israel turns to other gods, when Israel commits spiritual idolatry, the Bible speaks about it in terms of fornication, in terms of adultery. And this is because marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant, and Israel is in covenant relation with her God. And as the new Israel, as the Israel of God, as the church, you and I are the beloved bride of Christ. We are in covenant relation to the Lord and giver of life. And so violating the terms of God's covenant with us, his people, is, is like violating the, your covenant with your spouse. It is heinous in God's sight, and, and it's set forth in these terms in the scriptures to show the gravity of this sin. We also must wrestle with uh, what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, 
But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And this at first might be hard to understand, uh, but earlier in the passage, Paul explains this, that basically if you are united to Christ, if Christ truly dwells in your heart, when you sin sexually, it is as though you are bringing Christ into the midst of that sin. Paul puts it very bluntly. He basically says, do you, do you, do you not realize that engaging in sexual sin is like bringing Christ into a brothel? The, this is the ramifications of our union with Christ. Because our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, Paul says that when we sin sexually, we violate the terms of our borrowed bodies. Paul goes on to say that our bodies are not our own. He reminds us of this as the antidote. He says, you are not your own. He says, you have been bought with a price. And so we must glorify God with the bodies that we've been given. A young woman in our congregation recently shared this story with me, and she gave me permission to share this with you. Uh, But during one of her semesters at a school just across the, the Schuylkill River, she had a mandatory visit as part of her class to a cultural center that promotes and celebrates what God's Word calls sin. And during this visit, uh, the director of this institute had everyone sit in a circle. And after first coaching them uh, that there are 13 genders, she went around the room and pointed at each of them and asked them, how many genders are there? And at each time, expecting them to regurgitate the response. And I tell you this story not to be sensational, but simply to remind you that we must discern the times in which we live. We need not panic. We know how the final chapter of history ends, right? Christ as the judge of the earth, the king, the ruler of all. And we know that there's nothing new under the sun, right? The sins of today, regardless of how overt they are or in the open they are, have cycled through the generations throughout history because the thoughts of mankind are continually evil. But I tell you this story because you must know this, that if we do not address these issues, if we do not catechize our children, if we do not disciple uh, maturing believers and teach them the things of God, then the world will be quick to catechize them and disciple them for us. We do not live simply in a material world. There are, there are real spiritual forces at play. Think back to Dr. Gallagher's sermons uh, on Revelation and uh, the reality of the world in which we live, that the spirit of Antichrist is at work. The spirit of this age seeks to thwart the Lord Jesus and his purposes at every turn. And so we must be awake to the ways in which 
The devil prowls around, roaring like a lion, as the scriptures say, roaring, pr- roaring like a lion, seeking someone to devour. Churches are not immune to spiritual attacks from the enemy. And in our Western context, uh, many churches have capitulated to the sexual doctrines of the enemy. This is a battle, this is a battleground right now for the church. In the same way that the biblical doctrine of justification was a battleground for the 16th century church, so too human sexuality remains a battleground for us. And we must earnestly pray for courage and faithfulness and to not shrink back and cower in fear but engage because we have the hope that is within us. We have the hope of the gospel to proclaim to those who so desperately need it. And the scriptures do speak with great clarity on these issues. We see that homosexuality is a sin. We see this in Romans chapter one where we read that God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. God speaks with abundant clarity here. And the Bible speaks elsewhere about homosexuality in in Leviticus, for example. And we must remember that When the Bible speaks on this issue, these are not mere cultural prohibitions. These were were not Pauline cultural concessions. Remember that Scripture interprets Scripture. And though some novel interpretations have succumbed to pressure to try to accommodate, we must hold fast and look at the whole of the Bible, the whole counsel of God. And we can simply do this of reminding ourselves of the first point this evening of of beginning at the, uh, uh, of beginning, looking at the beginning of the story in Genesis, reminding ourselves of God's good creational design. What did God create before sin enters the world? What does God declare as very good? What does Paul appeal to in Ephesians chapter five as a picture of Christ and the church? What does Jesus, our, our, our very Lord, appeal to in Matthew chapter 19 when he's questioned about divorce? One man and one woman becoming one flesh in marriage. That's, that's where they appeal, to creation, to creation. And it's the same thing with uh, the issue of transgenderism. Today, God speaks with great clarity to us Again, we go to creation, and what is it that we find? We find this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And Jesus quotes these very words in the New Testament. So there's continuity. You see, God's image is reflected in the goodness and differentiation of male 
and female. We reflect God's glory as distinct sexes, male and female. Our biological and physiological realities are are given to us by God to reflect his image, to reflect his glory. And and as those who are either male or female, uh, we have different capabilities, but we complement one another. And this is a good thing. Paul urges us in Romans 13 to know the time He says, to know the time, to walk not in sexual immorality, but to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we heed these words, as we we seek to understand the times, we must not be blind to the way in which sexual immorality has invaded our walls, has invaded the church uh, through pornography. Pornography has fueled uh, and even accelerated the deviation from God's creational design. And our digital age and our addiction to dopamine have, have increasingly co- compounded the issue. So God, God is calling you to be discerning, to be repentant. If you have children, are you aware of the dangers Online, Are you seeking to guard their hearts? And if you currently struggle with pornography, have you heeded the words of our Lord in Matthew chapter 5 after he tells us that when we lust in our hearts, we commit adultery? He says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And what this reminds us of is that spiritual warfare requires a radical action. If your phone is a, is a hindrance to you, you may need to get rid of it for a season. And this is not legalistic, right? We are doing battle with the enemy. And if you're in the battle or if you're struggling in any way and you feel overwhelmed and you need help, please come and talk to me or talk to one of our elders. We want to walk alongside you as you wrestle with your flesh and you put to death uh, the deeds of the flesh. Well, as we come to a close, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the truth of the gospel. Sexual sin often comes with great shame. Sometimes even after we confess our sin and turn to God, we are all covenant breakers. And yet God is our great covenant keeper. He promises that if you confess You are forgiven. And Christ is forming you into a new creation by the power of his Holy Spirit. And as part of your ongoing sanctification, your no to sin will become stronger and your yes to Christ will indeed become stronger. And we have great news for those who are struggling with sin. 
Sexually broken and sexually confused men and women are often victims of abuse. They are often suicidal, desperate for answers, longing for meaning, looking to be loved, wanting to be known, desiring to be heard. They want to know true happiness, but they're searching in the wrong places. And so we have an obligation We have an obligation to point them to the right place, to the truth of Christ's gospel. There is no peace and happiness in this life apart from God. And so Christ is is far better than anything this world can offer. True joy, true meaning, true purpose is found in living according to God's design. Sexual sin leaves us empty. It leaves us depressed. It leaves us aimlessly wandering. And brothers and sisters, Jesus brings new life. He brings new life. So do you know this Jesus? Do you know my Jesus? Have you tasted and have you seen that the Lord is good? And if you have, I would encourage you to let your light shine because there is a great mission opportunity here. There's a great mission opportunity. The harvest is plentiful and there's a great harvest of men and women who are lost and perishing in sexual sin, who are confused, without hope, searching for identity, searching for something, a lifeline. And let's be bold and courageous to proclaim the hope of the gospel, trusting that the Lord of the harvest will do the work. And I want you to listen. I want you to listen to what the transforming grace of God can do in the life of a penitent sinner. How we can be transformed by his grace. And this is where we will end. This is the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. Beginning at verse 9, this is just a picture of the transformation that can occur in the life of those who turn and seek the Lord. The Apostle Paul says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the Spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, God can take even the most broken past and turn it into something beautiful. And if you are a new creation, praise God. This this passage reminds you that you are no longer identified. You are no longer shackled by the chains of sin. We may struggle in this life with gender dysphoria, with 
same-sex attraction, but those sinful things no longer define who you are. You may do battle with the enemy until the day you die. God's work of sanctification might be slower than you would like at times. But brothers and sisters, believe that God is fashioning you with his chisel. Even though it's painful, even though we wrestle, he's fashioning you with his chisel to be a vessel of glory. We are putting off and putting on. And your identity is in Christ. How sobering it is for us to consider what we've been freed from. Praise God for his glorious grace. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would seek to honor you with our bodies. We know that our bodies do not belong to us, that they belong to you. We ask that you would guide us to trust that your design is good for us and that what you say to us in your word is far better than anything else. Lord, forgive us for the ways we fall short, for the impure thoughts we have each day. Conform us to the image of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.